So what we're going to do today is try to conclude what we've been studying for the last three months, and that's the book of Daniel. And before I go any further, I need to congratulate you. I'm not trying to brown those, but I do need to affirm your stick to through a book like this because it's not a, wouldn't be surprising to me, it shouldn't be surprising to you, that there probably have been moments as we've read through this book in which you say the very words that you find in this last chapter in verse 8, where Daniel hears something and he says, I hear, but I do not understand. And I know full well that listening to this book presents its own challenge, not only in understanding the meaning for those who first heard it, but more so, what is the meaning for us now? In my attempt here to prep us for if you will, the last word of Daniel. I'd like to invoke a story that is probably familiar to you. You either read it as a child or you have read it to your children. And it is a story by Dr. Seuss. And it goes something like this. One day making tracks in the prairie of Prax came a north-going Zax. A north-going Zax and a south-going Zax. A north-going Zax and a south-going Zax. And it happened that both of them came to a place where they vanished. There they stood, foot to foot, face to face. Look here now, the north-going Zax said. Hey, say, you are blocking my path. You are right in my way. I'm a north-going Zax, and I always go north. Get out of my way now, and let me go forth. Who's in whose way? Snapped the south-going Zax. I always go south, making south-going tracks. So you're in my way, and I ask you to move and let me go south in my south-going groove. Then the north-going Zax said with north-going pride, I never have taken a step to one side. And I'll prove to you that I won't change my ways if I have to keep standing here 59 days. And I'll prove to you, yelled the south-going Zax, that I can stand here in the prairie of Prax for 59 years. For I live by a rule that I learned as a boy back in south-going school. Never budge, that's my rule. Never budge in the least, not an inch to the west, not an inch to the east. I'll stay here not budging. I can and I will if it makes you and me and the whole world stand still. the world didn't stand still. The world grew. In a couple of years, the new highway came through, and they built it right over those two stubborn Zacks and left them there, standing unbudged in their tracks. Great story, full of all sorts of implications for you if you're a kid, but like all good stories, it connects with you if you're an adult too, and, and that story does. But I, I invoke that 
memory from my childhood and yours to set us up for the end of Daniel for two reasons. One is this. Back in chapter 10 last week, you may remember that Daniel was praying and fasting and mourning until this angelic figure shows up to say unto him, your, your prayers have been answered and I'm here to deliver to you a message with an explanation for what are God's purposes in all of this mess. And in a moment like that, the, the angelic figure is out to offer that answer. And the lion's share of chapter 11, which we will not read today, is very much uh, a story of kings who come and go, but for most of that chapter, it is a stalemate, if you will, a political standoff between a north-going king, that is the king of Egypt, and a south-going king, the king of Syria. And Israel is caught in between for the entirety of their going back and forth. And this message to Daniel is to say or to explain how that's all going to shake out. But by the end of chapter 11, those two kings, a north and a south going king, have essentially reached this place where no progress is being made. And Israel finds itself in the middle of it, wondering what will happen. And that's, in some ways, what chapter 11 is about, at the risk of being too trivial. But... There's another reason why I bring up the Zacks. I think this world perhaps looks at you and at me who, who, who yield to Jesus as if we are in a collision with reality, in a standoff with reality. And by that I mean this. To most of the world, uh, they understand reality to be history moving just sort of in a random direction. There's no trajectory to it. It's unwitnessed. It's unguided. There's, there's not really any rhyme or reason to it. And they look at those who believe in God, and those who believe in God would say, no, no, there is a trajectory to this history. It is not unwitnessed. There is someone present. There is someone overseeing things. And so if you're from the outside looking in, you're looking at believers and you're thinking, you're just in this standoff with reality and you won't admit it. You just won't budge. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we feel that not only how we're seen, maybe that's how we feel on the inside. Maybe there are moments where we feel like, yeah, uh, maybe history is headed nowhere, but, but I'm being told that it's history and it's heading somewhere. So what do I do with all that? What do I do with the book of Daniel? I believe what we have in this last chapter, we're going to read chapter 12, is that we have to grapple with three things. Three things that are common both to Daniel and to us. It's our common lot, our common hope, and our common task. What do we do with Daniel? We grapple with those things, our lot, our hope, our task. So let's listen to the last chapter, Daniel chapter 12. Our central text for today is found in Daniel 12, verse 1 through 13. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, 
How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed till the end of time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abonition that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand on your allotted place at the end of the days. This, this is, is the, the word of, of the Lord. Lord. So when I was in Boy Scouts as a kid, invariably we would have the campfire, and uh, by the time everything was done and we were just enjoying uh, the camaraderie around that fire, uh, eventually somebody in our group would have that unique skill set to be able to do the little finger shadows. They would do, you know, start off with the rabbit. That's, that's basic. That's, that's finger shadows 101. And then it would develop into things like the elephant, the bear, um, the snake. If they were really good, they could do the platypus. But they would just cast their shadows up upon the canvas of the tents that were near us. And so what was there small at the, at the, at the fire would be cast up in a much larger frame on a larger canvas. And as we listen to Daniel chapter 12, that's Something like that's going on here. Daniel is being told something about what is both a future for him, but also an ultimate future that exists on a wider canvas at a larger scale. And so whatever we're going to hear told to Daniel in this chapter has a larger implication to it that, that wraps up with us too. And, and in that story, we're not only going to hear hints of the storyline of Jesus, we're going to hear Jesus actually explicitly refer to the story that Daniel was talking about to explain how that storyline culminates in and through him and why that has relevance for us. What we're going to hear, the first part of this storyline that Daniel is being told by this angelic figure is that we and he share a common lot. Now, that's not a word we use very often. It means our destiny. The last time you probably heard it said was when 3PO says, it's our lot in life. We're made to suffer. What I mean here by lot is nothing nearly so pathetic. It's, it's meant to brace us. It's meant to steal us. And what Daniel is told by this figure is that when it all shakes out, there is coming a day that will be unlike any other day, and that day will be grave. It will be a day of thick darkness. And like you hear there in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. There is a darkness that Daniel is being told is coming that has a relevance to an ultimate future that we all have to wrestle with. That there is a destiny that awaits us all. And 
in that season, it's because th there will be that day of darkness for two reasons. One, because of the unprecedented experience that those who listen to God will have, but also of what will happen to the worship of God in that season. What's going to happen to the people, it says, is something not unlike pottery shattering, that they will be stricken, that they will endure blows, that there will be something that has fallen upon those who are seeking to honor him and listen to him and follow him like no one has ever experienced. That will be shattering like pottery. And in that same season, worship, the worship that everyone is accustomed to, it will be replaced. It will be replaced by something even worse. It speaks of the day when the burnt offering shall be suspended and an abomination will make desolate the worship of God's people. That is this day of darkness. This is the common lot that, that both Daniel and Jesus and we all share an ultimate future that comes our way. And if I could put those very high sounding and, and almost uh, bizarre sounding words into perhaps a little bit more familiar frame. If you were in Paris in May of 1940, and the Nazis had invaded your country and overtaken it. And they had begun to hoist the Nazi flag over every single institution in your country. And if you were asked, which is worse, the fact that you are now occupied or that that flag now stood high atop everything that you knew that was sacred unto you, they'd be hard pressed to know which was worse. But if you're in Paris and anywhere in Europe in that 1940 season, <clears throat> that everything that you hold is beautiful and blessed is sacred has suddenly been replaced by that which you consider to be fiendish and tyrannical. And that which you hold in high regard is now beneath, literally and figuratively, the, the sign and symbol of what is an utter horror upon the land. Everything has been abominated, worthy of disgust, now that someone has waltzed in and overtaken all that you knew and loved. That is a description in part. In that day, that was Paris's lot. That was Europe's lot. And that is just an example of what Daniel is being told will be Israel's lot. Will, will be the lot of the people of God. Now, that's not just something Daniel speaks of. That's not only Daniel's word, or rather the word that comes to Daniel. That is language that even Jesus himself references. Jesus in Matthew 24 not only confirms the experience that Daniel is being told, he adds to it. And so you hear there in Matthew chapter 24, his recap that even quotes him where he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Jesus confirms and adds to what has been told to Daniel and it's a storyline that he himself takes part in and doesn't just report. Now, look, <clears throat> I know you didn't wake up today thinking that you wanted to think about or even hear about any kind of final tribulation. I get it. Really? A last battle? You want me to tell me about that? In, in a season like this, really? I get it. But look, if you will just think about what is being promised here, where 
all that is good and worshipful is being replaced by something that is a sinister form of it and, and a struggle that is without equal, then don't you, can't you admit that there is a certain connection to our own experience? But look, when it just comes to worship, I, I think we'd agree that there are any number of alternative views of reality out there that are competing with the view that we hold, but it's having almost the same kind of religious quality to it. Uh, they may not reference any kind of God. They may not agree on any set of texts that give them uh, the most definitive answer to their questions. But boy, you can be condemned and judged and excommunicated for all, so for all sorts of reasons. There's a religious quality to so much of what's out there, an alternative to this worship. And have we not also found any number of things that we might replace that's not worthy of our worship, like our own intellect or our own power or our own wealth or our own access, our networks, any number of things that are not worthy of worship have come on the scene and come to be a replacement. And that is worthy of all disgust. That's what an abomination is. And in that season, there is great struggle. And, and that's the other part that connects with this story, even if it seems so outlandish that it's too hard to believe. When it comes to struggle, are there not many among us or many that you know that can speak of their season or their lives as only a picture of horror that they never would have imagined that could have never been expected that was unprecedented in their day? There's plenty of people on this planet at this very hour who think this is not just something that's far off but something that's already come near. So let's talk about struggle for a minute. He's talking about struggle in a really profound and unprecedented way. And when you think about struggle... You realize how it shapes you. You realize how it changes you. And in that time, you realize, I get it. And in that season, what is happening? You lament. Lament is a, is a thick and, and pervasive biblical world, biblical word. It, it means uh, anguish. It means something like a holy complaint. And you hear the language of lament on, on the lips of many within Scripture and, and most often within the Psalms, you hear people asking, How long, O Lord, will this last? Have you really forgotten us in this season? Why is your hand heavy upon us? All of that is lament. All of that is anguish. All of that is longing for an end to whatever has afflicted them or whatever they can't put their eyes, or whatever they can't put their finger on. That's, that's lament. And friends, it is... In our day, where perhaps more of us than perhaps at any tether time in living memory are full of lament, full of anguish, full of things either that we've lost or been estranged from or been afflicted with or have died from, whatever the case may be, lament is available. But lament is something very unique. Lament is something more than complaint. Lament, as I said, is a holy complaint. And so lament is bringing what anguishes you to God. But it's holy in this sense, and which distinguishes it from just a complaint. A lament is where you bring that which is sorrowful to the Lord, but you do not use that sorrow as a pretext to become embittered to the Lord. That's what makes lament different from just wallowing in your sorrow. And that is the reality we find ourselves in, in many senses. And that's why... This might be a really weird application here at the halfway point of a sermon like this, but I would like for you to share with me your lament. I would like for you to share with us your lament. What is it 
that you are anguished over? What is it that you have struggled with, whether in this season or a season that preceded even this season? But something that has so affected you that you don't just leave it there and you don't just curl up in the corner and, and wallow in it, but that which you've tried to take before the Lord, that He might do something with it. Nicholas Walterstorff is a name I've mentioned to you before. He's a theologian and he had a son who died in a climbing accident in the Swiss Alps many years ago when his son was in his 20s. And in a memoir that he wrote for his son called A Lament for a Son, he wrote this, That loss determines my identity. Not all of my identity, but much of it. It belongs within my story. I struggle indeed to go beyond merely owning my grief toward owning it redemptively. In other words, that loss is his lot, and there is no erasing that. And yet, inasmuch as it was his lot, or it is his lot, he is choosing not to be swallowed by it, but to ask the Lord to do something in him and through him as a consequence of it. That's lament. In a couple weeks, we're going to have another liturgy in blue on a Sunday morning, in which we bring and face our reasons for lament. And so I wonder if you might share with me your lament. And then perhaps... We couldn't hear from all of you, but maybe we could hear from some of you and talk with some of you about what the nature of your lament is and how you've sought not only to own it, but to own it redemptively. Email me with it. We would love to hear it. That's one, I know, weird application for this. But that is our lot. And it's a lot we have to reckon with. But we don't simply consider our lot because we have to see our lot in a different frame. And that has to do with our common hope. Daniel has been told that he has reasons for hope. And the first of those reasons, even in the midst of being promised that a darkness awaits, is that there is something that would be unwanted, to be sure, but not totally worthless. And what I'm talking about there is a refinement. In the midst of the shattering of God's people, in the midst of a worship that is overturned by what is anything but a true worship, you hear in verse 10 something that will occur in that season where he says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. In other translations, it says that they will be refined, that they will be purified. And no matter how you translate those verbs, the point of it is this. Even in the darkness, even in the struggle, there is the possibility of gain. Something that is good that is on the other side of that darkness. And while in a benign sense, there's plenty of instances, plenty of examples in our common life in which there is no growth without struggle. Your mind, your muscles, and all sorts of things, your relationships, they are never as tightly bound or as thick or as resilient without going through that which is difficult. There's no way around that. But even in a more difficult frame, when it comes to suffering, it is true the reason they call it suffering is because more often it takes more than what it can add. But what Daniel is being told, and what is our common hope, and why we have a reason to hope is that there is something that can happen even in the midst of that struggle. Look, PTSD and disablement and estrangement and death, all of those, they're darkness and they're our lot. And in many ways, we never could have imagined. And they're nothing we would ever want to sign up for. But there is an opportunity in each one of them 
to purge something thick and deep within us that is utterly superficial, that is nothing but dross in our heart, and which can only be scoured away through the experience of that pain. And that's why there is something of hope in the midst of that, in the struggle of that, that is deepened because of the darkness. Now, there is that part of our hope, but there is another element to our hope that is even beyond the pale there, that, is, that, that even being refined can't compare with. And that's what you hear spoken of in a way that no one had ever heard in an Old Testament frame. You heard that in verses 2 and 3, where it is told to Daniel, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The reference there, I'm told, to the dust is meant to remind us of the fact that all of us are dust. We came from the dust, and to the dust we shall return. It's Genesis 3, right there, right under our nose, hidden in plain sight. But what is being told to Daniel is this, is inasmuch as you and I come from the dust, and to the dust we shall return, the dust is not our end. Which is a surprising thing to hear if you're the first recipients of Daniel's letter, because the Old Testament is rather coy in talking about a life beyond. It speaks with reverence of, of death, of going to, going to sleep alongside your fathers. But there are moments in which that which is hinted at starts to come into bolder relief because the psalmist says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Job, he says, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And even the prophet Isaiah, he says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust, awake, sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Here is a picture of what is hinted at in Daniel, which finally bursts forward in full relief into what is told Daniel in here in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that there is a life beyond our returning to the dust. And that had never been explicitly spoken in all of the Old Testament. And it is what is spoken of most concretely and most explicitly in what we hear from Jesus' words himself in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's what Jesus says. It's what Paul says. In his famous chapter in the letter to the church at Corinth, it is with the resurrection of the dead. So it is. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is the hope. Look, this is the hope we talk about every week. This is the hope upon which our faith rests. And without this hope, then what our faith is, is at best an ethical system. But on accordance with this common hope that is told to Daniel and which comes to a culmination in Jesus and which is still promised to us, that's our common hope. And today, you may not believe that at all. And that's okay. So just hear a reason to believe from something else that Paul says there in that same chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is our hope, friends. This is what we keep reminding of ourselves every week. And look, if that is our hope, then why are you so afraid? If this is our hope, why are you so consumed by anger? If this is our hope, then why do you place your hope in so many other places that have proven to be both unsatisfying and elusive? If this is our hope, then why do you keep telling yourself that if I just had this one thing or if this one thing happened to me, everything would be fine and all would be well? Why do you keep telling yourself that? If this is our hope, look, I'm not speaking to you as if to shame you. I'm speaking to you as if one trying to give you permission not to be afraid and not to be consumed by your anger and not to try to find your hope in that which is no hope. And, and by not trying to tell yourself, if I just had this one thing, everything will be fine. Our common hope invites to us invites us into a very different way of seeing things and a very different response and a very different set of aspirations. But it is a hope that we cling to and it's the story we're sticking to. Is that it though? Is that all we have to think about? That's our hope and that's certainly a, a, a wonderful answer to our lot, but is there anything more to that? There is. We have a task. So what's that task? If you are Daniel and you have been told what Daniel has heard from this angelic figure about a darkness yet to come and yet a hope that still keeps you on your feet, you would be asking the same questions that Daniel is asking. Like, how long until this is all going to shake out? That's what he asks in verse 6. And, and as he asks in verse 8, you would ask the same thing. So what will be the outcome of all these things? Those are reasonable questions. And you know what? The answer from the angelic figure is only to tell you what I've already told you. But there is one phrase that that figure tells Daniel two times. And it's this. Go your way, Daniel. Go your way. In other words, finish your race, man. Take heart at what I've told you. Take heed of what you know. And, and go in that direction. Finish your day. Finish your way. And then you will rest. And then you will rest. And you will have your allotted space. See, I think you could condense the entirety of what is being said in Daniel chapter 12 to what Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 16. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What is being told to Daniel is what Paul tells the church in Galatia. Do not grow weary in doing good for such is our hope. If we do not give up, for in due season we will reap. That's the call. But there may be a more edgy way of saying it in a more familiar voice and a familiar tenor that what is told to Daniel may be what Bono has tried to tell us for a long time in that song, Walk On. And I don't have time to play you the song, and I surely wouldn't desecrate it by singing it to you. But I will quote to you the impertinent parts from the lyrics and you can go listen to it later.
But Bono says in that song, you're packing a suitcase for a place none of us have been, a place that has to be believed to be seen. You could have flown away, a singing bird in an open cage who will only fly, only fly for freedom. But walk on, walk on. What you've got, they can't deny it. You can't sell it, you can't buy it. Walk on, walk on, stay safe tonight. I know it aches and your heart, it breaks and you can only take so much. Walk on, walk on. Daniel, go your way. Walk on, Daniel. Church, go your way. Do not grow weary in doing good and walk on. This is your task while you wait for the hope to come to reality in the middle of your lot that may be very well full of darkness. What I think this whole book is telling to us is this, and I think it comes down to what you've learned from the Zacks. You are no fool for standing your ground in an unbudging way and refusing to flinch at a world that looks at you and thinks that you're a fool for thinking that history is headed in a way that for all things is gonna be good. You are no fool for standing unbudging against a world that looks at you thinking that you are mad, thinking that you are mad that there is a forgiveness that tops all things. You are no fool for standing there unbudging before a world that thinks you mad for believing that there is a love at the center of all things that is baked into the very origin of all things and the very future of all things. You are no fool for standing there unbudging, believing that there is one who has come for you and will reconcile you to all things. Stand your ground, take heed and take heart. Go your way, church, and walk on. That's its message to us. And that's why I'd like to end this series by praying for you in the words of John Calvin, who offered this prayer in response to what he learned from the book of Daniel. So listen to this prayer that he prayed for us and which I now pray for you as well as for myself. Grant, Almighty God, since thou proposed to us no other end than that of constant warfare during our whole life, and subject us to many cares until we arrive at the goal of this temporary race course. Grant, I pray thee, that we may never grow fatigued. May we ever be armed and equipped for battle. And whatever the trials by which thou dost prove us, may we never be found deficient. May we always aspire toward heaven with upright souls and strive with all our endeavors to attain that blessed rest which is laid up for us in heaven. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And amen.